I'll say I'm definitely still excited. Um, I think there's definitely some like wiping away of the rose colored glasses that's happened. Um, you know, like especially early on when we were still figuring out what Ethereum was and what you could do with protocols. We worked on a lot of things that were essentially rebuilding the philosophies or structures of existing um, infrastructure in Web2. Um, so, you know, like DAOs and governance, you know, can be symbolic of governments or, or, or other kind of governing bodies. Um, and, and I think early on, there was a lot of sort of ambition that everything we're doing is fundamentally new. And I don't think that's quite what's happening. And now we're starting to tease out what is the new element. Today, I'm joined by Eva. Uh, she is the director at the Graph Foundation uh, and also one of the core contributors and investors at eGirl Capital. So uh, really excited for you to join the podcast. Been looking forward to this one and making it happen. Thank you for joining. Thanks for having me, Logan. Um, I would love just to start off with uh, a little bit about yourself uh, and how you got into the industry. I think it's always a little bit uh, unique on everybody's backgrounds. Everybody kind of comes from a different path. Uh, sometimes the engineering rabbit hole, sometimes it's just uh, more on like the financial side. So what drew you in? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is actually in economics. And so I was a management consultant um, for mostly financial services companies and working in New York and Canada. Um, and then my brother actually, who's a software developer, had started working with consensus and learning about Ethereum. I think this was late 2016. Um, and it was very closely tied to some of my work functionally related to payments. Um, and the more I learned about blockchain, the more I started recommending it to our clients or our internal project teams, and really no one was having it. Um, really, you know, we're, we were very early, um, but it really entranced me and I felt like I, I needed to leave the space that I was in and really start working on something more revolutionary. So, um, you know, re really thanks to my brother for helping me learn about Ethereum so quickly and then, it, you know, helping me get the confidence to join the space itself. Um, and so I've been here, I think, about five years. Learn. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, like I spent 2017 learning, hadn't quite left my job and then left. And then since 2018, I've been working in the space full time. Um, I worked at a few different startups, uh, including Omise Go, Malik Dow, the Ethereum Foundation, um, kind of jumping around wherever I felt was most um, kind of important. Um, and then a few years ago, I came upon the graph um, and really realized um, the infrastructure layer, um, you know, aside from just the blockchain L1 itself, hadn't had as much development yet. Um, and really the data space specifically was such a needed aspect for any kind of DAP development or um, builder ecosystem. So I've been working with the graph ever since. Amazing. Uh, amazing story. Maybe before jumping like directly into graph, you've worked at, as you mentioned, some pretty cool companies. How was it working at the Ethereum Foundation? Yeah, so the Ethereum Foundation is sort of this, you know, amoeba of contributors. Um, you know, at, at the time I was one of, of a few contributors. We were focusing on how can we scale um, kind of the entry point into Ethereum. Um, so, you know, getting people like myself or um, just like non, non crypto, non um, engineering focused um, to enter the space because we need business developers, we need um, product managers, marketing, et cetera. Um, so that was really cool. And a lot of the learnings there, you know, I've been able to take into the Graph Foundation and what we do um, and how do we maintain sort of the neutral elements for a sustainable um, protocol ecosystem. Amazing. Uh, it's always, I would say, uh, looking back, it's, I think, hard to make the decisions to leave or to move on to a, another venue. But uh, once you've kind of done it and you can look back and connect the dots, it always looks a little bit more easy uh, in hindsight. So uh, very impressive. Maybe diving deeper into the graph, uh, I think the graph is an amazing tool that engineers love and use. 
but maybe it's not as front facing of a product. So uh, some people know about it, obviously the engineering side, but for those that are not as familiar with um, the core components, could you just describe what the graph does um, and why it's so pivotal on the engineers? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the most basic way to describe what the graph is, is we are organizing blockchain data and enabling access to that data. Um, so starting from the developer perspective, this is really our first use case, is developers need access to blockchain data to be able to build applications. Um, and when we say data, it really could be anything from, um, you know, trades and pricing for pairs to, um, you know, the, the marketplace data for an NFT to voting data for a DAO. So like really the point of the graph is to support all data use cases, regardless of what you want to build on whichever blockchain. Um, so, you know, we are blockchain agnostic. We believe um, in supporting the developers with whatever choices they decide to make. Um, bringing it sort of more vision setting, you know, our goal is to provide access to all data services. So our bread and butter right now is something called a subgraph, which is just a standard API. Um, it's an access point for developers to query data. Um, but the future is different kinds of data services, different kinds of transformations um, that are streamed from the, the, the graph. So um, one new example is something called substreams. Um, it's this really incredibly efficient new architecture that's coming to the graph that makes it easy to process raw blockchain data um, in a parallel format. So it's much more efficient, uh, much higher performance. Um, and this will not only improve the performance of subgraphs, but actually opens up a new field of data that the graph can serve. Um, so really our goal is, you know, we've started with this uh, developer facing tool, this API, um, but over the next several years, there should be different kinds of data services and also different kinds of users being able to access it. Um, so you can imagine a world where um, you can actually SQL query um, blockchain data directly from the graph and data scientists then are actually interacting with the graph directly. That would be amazing. Uh, I kind of a data nerd myself, uh, love the SQL aspect. And I think the hard part, as you mentioned, is kind of being able to index that data, sequence it, and turn it into something useful. But the blockchain is rich with data. Uh, it just has to do some refinements and very appreciative that the graph is kind of there to support that endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, uh, you said ultimately the graph uh, recently launched uh, parallel processing, correct? Or parallel... Um, uh, yeah, that, that's a great way of wording it. Par parallel processing architecture. Okay, perfect. So eventually you initially starting out on ethereum uh focused a lot on on the evm does this new capability with the parallel processing ultimately unlock non-evm architectures yeah absolutely and this is actually one of the most exciting elements of this um so substreams themselves are like a data source so you'll query the substream directly um and that can be for any chain um, but what's even more exciting is the backend infrastructure of these substreams is called Firehose. Um, you can imagine literally like a firehose of data just coming from a blockchain. And that actually should be more closely tied with client teams. Um, so a lot of what we're doing now is actually speaking with teams like Aptos, um, Starkware. We actually had contributors in, the, in, in their ecosystems just pick up our Firehose code and implement it with their existing chain. Um, and the goal being that this Firehose infrastructure, which was originally built for the graph, can actually, you know, make um, other chain operations just much more efficient. So um, hopefully this actually um, improves the the operations of nodes for other chains, aside from just like graph node-based chains. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, am a big fan of Aptos and what they're doing. Uh, uh, their parallel processing is pretty unique uh, in how they do it. And so 
awesome that you're able to kind of be chain agnostic. I think uh, as pivotal of a role of indexing and um, being able to query data, kind of structure it, uh, really every chain is going to need it regardless of kind of the different architecture types. Yeah. And our viewpoint is like, it's really not our place to decide how a developer chooses their ecosystem or what chain and which trade-offs they want to make. Um, but it is our role to really create the most efficient way for these developers to build applications um, and creating standards across those chains. So a lot of what we think about the graph is, as um, the role is like a unifier where you might not eventually need to know the underlying languages of those chains, but maybe you'll just use subgraphs across those chains. And then the interface you're interacting with is the graph. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, I love it. I, I think that is kind of some of the missing uh, building blocks that has really kind of held the industry back just because blockchains are very rudimentary to kind of uh, build upon, at least before, prior to the graph's existence. Uh, because <laughs> these basic functionalities that we've had in the Web2 world of like well-built IDEs, well-built infrastructure on the indexing side just don't exist. And I think people often forget that we're really rebuilding everything from scratch uh, and it's not easy. Yeah. And furthermore, we have to build it decentralized. Um, yeah. You know, I, like I know that there's still this, you know, what should be decentralized and what shouldn't. Um, in, in, in our view, it's really anything that's needed to maintain the user relationship and the developer relationship. So, you know, yes, you could have your smart contracts that are immutable, but if nobody can access that application or access their assets without literally being another smart contract developer, we haven't really achieved what our goal was because all these people can't actually use the thing or access the thing. Um, so for us, you know, decentralizing the data layer um, is just one piece, but there's a lot of other projects like Filecoin, Arweave that are decentralizing other layers of the stack. Um, and at fruition, we need all layers of the stack to be decentralized so that they are resilient um, and censorship resistant. 100%. Maybe just pulling on that thread, could you talk a little bit more about what parts of the stack that you have decentralized at the graph, but also some of those partnerships as well? Yeah. So like you said, we focus on indexing. So um, our crux has been the network itself, which is decentralizing the actual node operators. So the, the teams that are running the servers, um, instead of relying on one hosted service, as the graph has been in the past and how we started, um, we think the scalable way and re really the only way forward is to have hundreds, if not thousands of indexers that are processing data. Um, and again, they make their own trade-offs, right? Like developers could choose different pricing or different latency, um, and those indexers provide that opportunity. So that's one layer of decentralization. Um, another would be just the actual data itself because subgraphs and actually substreams also and you know all, all future data services um, are open source, that means that one developer that's built a subgraph um, can actually benefit another development team because they can now work on that same open source API. So um, we're really creating a, a decentralized ecosystem of data um, that's much more composable than centralized parties just operating by themselves. Um, and the last thing is, you know, like you said, partnerships, um, you know, like the, the graph is here to index all data. So really we're here to make sure that if you want to query, you know, IPFS data or are, are we files that you will be able to do that. So um, we're continuously rolling out support for um, new chains, new types of file data services. Um, and, you know, we'll see what else Web3 throws at us. Yeah, <laughs> the industry always keeps us on our toes. Uh, every week there's something new and uh, <laughs> I wish it would uh, not move as fast, but I think it's exciting <laughs> that ultimately we've chosen an industry to work in that, uh is so moving so quickly, it's hard to keep up. 
It's definitely exciting at all times. <laughs> yes, for sure. Maybe uh, pivoting a little bit, you've been in the industry now for a while. Uh, you've seen some of the ups and flows. Uh, you've seen bad actors blow up. You've seen people come in, build really awesome products. Uh, people leave. What has your kind of, how, I guess, as you've kind of been in the industry longer, has your view of like crypto changed at all? Or are you still like excited about the vision that initially brought you in? I, I will say I'm definitely still excited. Um, I think there's definitely some like wiping away of the rose colored glasses that's happened. Um, you know, like especially early on when we were still figuring out what Ethereum was and what you could do with protocols. We worked on a lot of things that were essentially rebuilding the philosophies or structures of existing um, infrastructure in Web2. Um, so, you know, like DAOs and governance, you know, can be symbolic of governments or, or, or other kind of governing bodies. Um, and, and I think early on, there was a lot of sort of ambition that everything we're doing is fundamentally new. And I don't think that's quite what's happening. And now we're starting to tease out what is the new element, you know, so things like being able to coordinate remotely in a decentralized manner without an intermediary, that itself is the new element, not governance itself. Um, so I think you know, right now we're starting to figure out more of what is the actual benefit of a blockchain, like specifically what features um, are provided instead of just thinking about let's put everything on chain. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see more innovation here. Like, I, you know, I, I would say we haven't quite seen um, as much innovation at the app layer since maybe the flash loan. Um, but it, it'd be cool to see more of these kinds of things, because in my opinion, the flash loan is, you know, fundamentally a new product that Web3 enables that in the grand scheme of all financial products, whether Web2 or Web3, um, it has a standalone benefit regardless of the blockchain behind it. So um, I think over the next few years, we should focus more on these things. Um, another example that comes to mind is um, privacy. Um, so everything with zero knowledge proofs, it, it fundamentally creates new products. We've never been able to share our KYC without an intermediary knowing exactly the detail behind it. Um, but there's a future now where we could have zero knowledge proofs uh, in, in the background and really maintain privacy in a new way. Yeah, 100%. Uh, maybe on the first topic that you mentioned, uh, DAOs, I too was uh, very, I would say, I would agree, uh, rosy eyed going into it and uh, thought maybe DAOs were like a re uh, brand new structure that we could kind of coordinate. And I, I do believe it is, uh, but it doesn't mean that we still kind of remove the structure. Uh, we still have to kind of coordinate. Could you talk about, I believe you said you were involved in some DAOs early on, even uh, I believe the graph has a DAO as well. Could you talk about removing some of those rosy colored glasses and just what you've observed just being a um, prominent member in some of these DAOs? Yeah. So, I mean, I can start with some pros. You know, there's definitely pros to coordination. I think that's definitely a, a new feature, um, you know, without needing some kind of um, legal or Web2 approval process. There is this permissionless path that people could either receive funding or put up proposals. So that's very exciting. Um, I think one thing, at least on my side and people I've worked with, we maybe mistaken was um, politics and the role that politics play in governance. And I think in the beginning, there was this idea that blockchains could literally obliterate politics, like the DAOs were somehow yeah. politics free. And I think it's actually quite the opposite. Um, and we, we, we almost need to like bridge the gap of all of these sort of like standard human, like Maslow hierarchy of needs elements that still play a role in daily markets um, and, and, and human behavior. So, um, you know, 
on the politics front, like in, in our experience with the DAOs in our ecosystem, we've definitely seen that play out. We've also seen because of the DAO structure, we're using Moloch DAO um, with DAO House. There's all these um, checks and balances that even if there is politics at play, that you can actually um, remove it. So things like rage quits, things like rage um, not, uh, guild kicks, where, where the DAO actually decides that someone should be removed. These are really interesting mechanisms that then solve for some of what we have. Whereas, you know, I don't think the Senate or most governing bodies have the ability to really kick someone out as, as efficiently as, as we've been able to with DAOs. So um, I, th I think there's a bit more blending that we need to do of like older ideologies, older philosophies that have, have kind of, you know, existed for centuries, regardless of which technology was being used. And how do we then blend that more with our new technology? Yeah, I, <laughs> I do fully agree. I, I think I was also optimistic that uh, politics could possibly be removed, but uh, humans are humans. And at the end of the day, uh, this is tech and we built it. So uh, <laughs> I think uh, can't remove politics. On yeah, I think we can make it more ma manageable, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, like being able to have it a little bit more open, being able to coordinate uh, and like kicking people out, uh, being able to vote on like things in like, more coordinated fashion. These are all things that I think DAOs do uniquely enable that uh, were not previously there. Right. Totally. So making some progress, maybe uh, slow and steady as the industry has kind of been. Uh, one thing that I think that I was personally surprised by in the passable market was just how large NFTs actually became. I was curious, like even like prior to joining the graph or even at the Ethereum Foundation, is that it's something that you thought was going to be as prominent as it ultimately became? I would say I've always been very excited about NFTs. Um, so like CryptoKitties were definitely my first foray into this. Um, but I also really early. like art. Yeah. Um, I, I also really like art. So I make my own NFTs sometimes on the side. So for me, there is a bit of a, an angle here of I understand the benefit directly to me as a user. Um, I often like to say, like, I've been able to sell several NFTs and um, sort of create almost my own audience that that has you know followed along with my work that would have been nearly impossible for me to do in web 2 without sort of the ecosystem that web 3 provides um, and what I mean by that is you know for example in web 2 world you can have an Etsy um, you know you can have a gallery but even those are, are quite challenging to bootstrap um, you know with a gallery you need approval you need to be um, you know admitted or there's some competition um, whereas with nfts you can literally create anything you want you're creating your own audience your own marketing your own um, distribution method even like like how you want to um, build out the ecosystem of supporters um, I see a lot of artists these days doing um, almost like loyalty based, um, drops where, you know, if you've been um, a, a contributor or um, a purchaser of an NFT in the past, then you get to now participate in the, the artist's future. Um, so I, I, I'm personally really excited. I think I've always been aligned here. I would personally like to see a bit more innovation um, in the NFT space from the technology side. Um, so I, I, I like to call this potentially create fi, you know, so we've got like decentralized finance, but where's the creator finance innovation? Um, because to me, the NFT you know, honestly feels a bit primitive and boring to an extent, like it's really just a token standard. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've had a lot of discussions around um, royalties and is that possible to enforce on chain? And it turns out it's not quite possible, but to me, this is like skimming the surface of what we can do to actually fundamentally create new mechanisms. Like, like where's the flash loan for the creator industry? Like what is that one unique thing aside from just being a blockchain and you can, you know, own your rights. What, what is that other mechanism set that really transforms that industry? 
Yeah, I fully agree. It seems like we have really truly scratched the surface of what the NFT standard can ultimately create. And I, like you, am super excited about, I think, ultimately breaking up some of the monopolies that currently exist on the creator side. I, I think a big one ultimately being YouTube. Uh, I know Snapchat yeah. does stuff. Uh, Elon stepping into the game with uh, Twitter content. But having kind of that Web3 native version hasn't really taken off yet. Maybe Lens is probably one of the more prominent ones. Uh, I know Deso also took a crack at it. Why don't you think the creator side has taken off as much as uh, the NFT side? This is a great question. Um, I would say like attention wise, we've probably captured more artist attention than the attention of developers necessarily working in the art space. And there might be that there's just not that many. Um, but I, I would wonder like how many people from Snapchat and YouTube have actually decided to leave Web 2 and work in Web 3. Um, and to me, this points to just a larger um, challenge that we have of sort of diminishing returns of some of our engagement strategies. Um, so, for example, at the graph, we're really reassessing the role of hackathons. Um, and especially early on in Ethereum, like hackathons were really important. It was really the only way you were getting developer attention and you were engaging. And now it's not so clear if they're the right place for um, new developer adoption. Um, it's still a great place to like meet new teams. But is that really the place that the Snapchat product manager is going to be visiting to then learn about Web3? Um, or what is the funnel for us to get more product front end people involved? Because um, in my opinion, I think we we've done a pretty good job of kind of connecting the in group. Um, but really, like, how do we get more of the out group involved here? And that might not always be a hackathon that has a capacity of 15,000 people. Yeah, the hackathons, I mean, I went to uh, early hackathon, I think in 2018, right after the bear market uh, for Ethereum and or the entire industry in 2017. And I was actually amazed by the energy in 2018 around the hackathon. And it was those kind of events that brought the engineers together and kind of continued the enthusiasm uh, <laughs> while prices were definitely depressed from what they were earlier in that bull market cycle. If it's not hackathons, where do you ultimately see the next um, engineers or cohort to come into the ecosystem? Uh, is it kind of just tapping into the Web2 talent that exists Great question. So like, I, I would say we still love hackathons. To me, they're, they're the magical space. They're like the, the protected safe space. It's really where you're getting to know everyone. Um, so I don't want to diminish those efforts. Um, but I do think we need to do a bit more of us entering existing spaces rather than having people come to our spaces. Um, so instead of necessarily recruiting people to come to our hackathons, like, are we the Web3 team showing up in the existing Web2 spaces? You know, for, for us, maybe that's GraphQL, maybe that's like the Rust community. What are the other, um, you know, places and environments where developers are engaging or they would learn about something without having already been predisposed to Web3? Um, because I think a lot of, you know, the last few years has been predicated on initiative and entrepreneurial spirit. So people like myself or other people leaving their their stable job to then join this revolution. And that is not something that necessarily scales. Not everyone is the revolutionary contributor. And so this next wave of contributors, like how do we actually tap into their motivation? Like what is their religion? Um, and I think that needs us going a little bit more into their, their spaces, like I said, than necessarily us bringing them over. I do agree. 
in that point of view, I think one of the large pushbacks that I get from even when I talk with uh, limited partners is what is the killer app for crypto? Uh, why hasn't there been a killer app outside of just pure speculation? And I think the hard thing, it's a it's a great question, I think, from their end. And often I think the relatively easy but dumb answer and kind of sad answer is just USDC payments kind of awkward across chain outside of that why don't you feel like the adoption on chain or any killer app has really taken off i have a few theses theses here um so one is kind of pointing back i don't think there's enough product in front end people in web3 for our scale like if we probably took a ratio of developers we still are probably much more infrastructure heavy right now but our infrastructure has actually gotten to the point now where we can build high quality apps. So, you know, th- things like a Snapchat are literally possible now, um, whereas they weren't really possible three years ago. Um, I think there's also um, a-, a habit for us to think about how does crypto solve our problems or like how does crypto um, exist in the world in-, in our lens rather than what problem are we solving with crypto? And, you know, there there isn't like a clear solution to this because like everyone's sort of resource constrained, like we are, I'm sure everyone is, but I think there is a bit of a mentality shift of like, okay, crypto problems are not real world problems or like they're not yet. Um, So is there a way for maybe web 2.5 type of ideas to um, froth up and then, you know, with a more web three roadmap, but at least solving some web two related problems first, not just being, you know, a web three focused protocol or, or product. Those make a lot of sense. I always, I, I've been frustrated, I think, by the industry in large part just because I feel like application engineers have to focus on infrastructure. And unfortunately, there's now, well, I guess it's a good thing. Ultimately, there's many different options and engineers have many different choices uh, to build upon on multiple different layer ones or different layer twos. It's a hard choice and for engineers to kind of decide where to build do you think ultimately the industry will have multiple layer twos, multiple L1s, hundreds or thousands, or do you think they'll ultimately kind of be coalesced on a couple few? So, I mean, from the graph's perspective, because we are blockchain agnostic, I think the future is different chains, different instances of rollups, different forks, you know, all, all of the above. Um, and so for our purposes, it really doesn't matter because, again, we're trying to create the standard that if you're a developer building, let's say, on Optimism, if you wanted to go build on Celo tomorrow, that there's the infrastructure there that you don't have to think about it very much. Because I agree, like we don't want developers, DAP developers to think about infrastructure. They should focus on product. Um, I do think that there will be certain ecosystems that um, thrive more than others. Um, and those could be based on network effects. They could be based on um, sort of the the access, uh, you know, to specific developer communities or partnerships. Um, so, you know, seeing things like um, optimism that, you know, I, I am a board member of as well. But, um, you know, seeing Coinbase really get excited about launching a rollup. Um, to me, that positions the optimism ecosystem with some unique benefits than maybe others. Um, but I don't expect there necessarily to be a, a winner take all because I, you know, just human nature, even if one of us liked a chain more than the other, um, I think there's going to be people that choose different chains for different trade-offs. You mentioned Coinbase. I think uh, it may be caught the industry a little bit by surprise. What are your thoughts around base, the L2 that Coinbase is launching and how do you think it'll kind of push forward the industry? Again, I'm, I'm a board member of Optimism, so I'm biased, but I'm personally very excited. I think this is like the new foray of 
the the bridge of CFI into more proper DeFi and everything that's happened over the past year has been really unfortunate, but we've learned a lot. Um, so I, like, I think it's very noble of uh, Coinbase to really take this next step of decentralization and caring about their users and what the future looks like. I expect that there will be a lot more of this kind of behavior, um, not necessarily a centralized exchange, but just teams, um, you know, maybe existing Web2 teams or new products that favor creating their own roll-up ecosystem, maybe for cost reasons, maybe for, you know, um, experience reasons. Um, and then, you know, having things like the Optimism super chain um, or, you know, either um, cross-chain bridges, if those are safe, um, that, that actually blend those ecosystems together. Um, I think the end vision is that a user should never even be able to choose which network they have to switch between. Like the fact that we still do that on MetaMask is insane. Um, it should just be so seamless in the back end. There's some routing going on based on whichever um, action the user wanted to take in the front end. Um, so we're, we're probably a bit away from that, but I think the future is a lot more unified than we kind of think about today. I uh, was surprised uh, it took MetaMask so long to integrate NFTs and being able to see NFTs in the wallet. So I was super excited once they uh, finally got that uh, shipped. Yeah, totally. And I'm excited to see like gaming, you know, hasn't really taken off yet. Like what does that experience look like from a wallet? Um, you know, how, how do we blend our worlds a little bit more? Whereas today in Web2, we have a bank and then we've got our gaming console. Like ultimately with crypto, these assets can be interchangeable or we're just very easily accessible from the same wallet. So how does our experience change? True, true. Maybe shifting a little bit, you're also involved with uh, eGirl Capital. Could you talk about how that kind of group of investors ultimately came about and uh, how it got formed? Yeah, so we like to call ourselves an amorphous um, collective of investors. Um, you know, really, it started just from shared interests, you know, sharing a lot of information um, and realizing that we were fairly values aligned on some of the places that we wanted to invest our time and capital. Um, and then we were also very involved in the DAO space. So these two things kind of blended together. Um, we've been investing, I think, now for over two years. Um, and I would say what's cool is, you know, because everyone kind of has their own full time job or other gig going on, we don't have this requirement or pressure of needing to invest. We don't have any LPs um, and we really only go by what's values aligned. So um, it gives us flexibility to only support the projects that we really believe in. Um, and then also, you know, we're, we're here to, you know, create content, create cultural movements. Um, you know, some of the work that CL has been doing is a little bit more on the side of the arts. Um, you know, we've got people like Loomdart who has his own NFT project. So really we're here to, to, to be an ecosystem player and support our, our projects as much as we can. That's amazing. And, uh, and we're having, anonymous. <laughs> yeah. You, pseudonymous. You got a lot of different things coming together to make that happen. And I think by not having LPs and being able to solely kind of focus on uh, the projects that you're truly deeply passionate about uh, makes you guys very aligned with the founders and the builders that you're investing with. Can you talk about any particular projects uh, that eGirl Capital did invest in and ultimately some of the thesis behind it? Yeah, I would say overall, our thesis is supporting decentralized applications and infrastructure that we think are vital for the future. Um, you know, really thinking about what what, what is necessary, um, you know, beyond these sort of early stages of crypto and what do we think will be foundational. Um, so, you know, we've got a few projects like Connext, um, Alchemix. Um, we've even got some more artistic ones like Oh Baby Games. Um, and again, because we don't have any LPs, we don't sort of have this um, very strict thesis that we have to follow. Um, and we're really trying to, you know, cover the the breadth, you know, so really looking at what are the high quality players across the verticals in Web3. 
Um, so I think at this point, we've probably invested in everything from DeFi to NFTs to infrastructure. Um, and, you know, we, we don't really have a quota or anything like that. It's really whichever projects we see, you know, following the trends, really doing our own research um, and also following the community. You know, we, we want to do things that actually make sense and are um, net beneficial. Amazing. And I guess for like the founders and engineers that are listening to this podcast, is there like anything that you can disclose on like average check size or how to get in contact with the uh, eGirl Capital Goal team to for a potential investment? Yeah, I would say check size really varies. Um, again, because we are a collective, you know, not every member even is investing. Um, it, it really is um, a decision of the group of if we as a collective want to invest and then, you know, how much really differs. Um, in terms of advice, you know, I would say if you if you have something interesting, get in contact with a member of eGirl. Um, but, you know, we're really looking for proof of concept. Um, so ideally, you know, if the project has, you know, some evidence or some um, go to market already, um, that, that would be excellent. And then, you know, we, we are looking for innovators. So, um, you know, copycats are great, you know, for things like yield farming. Um, but we really want to make sure we're investing in high quality projects. So eGirl Capital, uh, you have kind of very check size, um, but you're more trying to advance the industry as a whole. Are there any particular things, though, that interest you? Uh, maybe even outside of the graph, we talked about a little bit about the social side with the creator economy. We talked a little bit on gaming, but holistically, is there anything that you're uniquely excited about for maybe the rest of 2023? 20, uh, yeah, I have a few answers here. So the obvious one is AI. Um, you know, naturally, it's on everyone's mind. What's really unique for us at the graph is we work with data. We, we actually use AI even in our own sort of core development processes. Um, but I'm really interested in figuring out how the graph as an open data foundation can work with language models and, and what that future looks like for AI and crypto. Um, the second thing that, that I'm kind of excited about is, you know, like if, if you go and look, what are the top apps on Apple or um, Android? Most of them are social and gaming. You know, like you, you've got a few of your like email or your your Google Calendar, but most of them are like the Snapchats of the world, the Instagrams. And I don't think we've quite created that type of application. And when I think about what like what makes that kind of application, like no one really cares about what's going on in the back end. It's all about the experience that's being provided to the user. So I'm excited to see more innovation at the experience layer. Um, a lot of that could be gaming because I don't think we've quite figured out the crypto gaming connection, you know, there's been quite a bit of hostility, even from the gaming community on creating NFT marketplaces, you know, all, all these things. Um, but, but I'm really keen to see like, what is that app that's going to make it onto the leaderboard of, you know, the, the Apple, um, app store where people don't even realize cryptos in the back end. Um, and I think there's always, you know, headway made from teams like Uniswap and, and everything, but even those are very crypto native products. Where is the product where you don't know it's crypto native, but the experience is so wonderful, you're using it just because you like the app? Yeah, being able to uh, kind of abstract the complexity of blockchains, but keeping the properties that we all have kind of loved that blockchains uniquely enable, I think is the challenging aspect. Uh, and there is a lot of friction in today's applications uh, and being able to, one, kind of support scale, but two, just uh, making that seamless user experience, it, it is a challenging endeavor. Yeah, I, I mean, I would go farther and say, it's not even user experience. It's like, what are we trying to build? Like, what do we want our users to be using? Like, literally, I'm sure when Snapchat came out, 
there was a whole innovative process of like, you know, people want to send nudes or they want to send things that disappear. And that was the crux of the discussion, not, okay, we're going to figure out how to use the internet to make people have more fun. Like maybe that's where it started, but it was more likely something around the product experience that they wanted to generate and then figuring out the stack around it. And I, I, I want to challenge the community to do a bit more of that. I fully agree. In terms of maybe your favorite product uh, that is Web3 uh, related, do you have a personal favorite? I mean, I love ENS. Um, I know that's a bit of like, that's a product and a protocol, but I think that's you know a huge foundation that we haven't quite seen um, the full utility of. Like, how do we embed ENS into our daily lives? Um, what else do I like? Um, you know, there's like the standard ones, like a zapper, you know, the, the portfolio managers, um, there is, um, some of the work that Shibuya people pleaser is doing, I think is really exciting. So the concept of like on-chain auction houses and just fundamentally changing that model. Um, although I'm not a technically user, I I am following some of that work. Um, let me think what else, Hmm. um, EPNS, the notification protocol, um, I think they're really exciting. And, and again, they're a protocol, so I don't know if they have one product, but the concept of creating notification systems and messaging um, embedded into our applications, I think we'll see a lot more of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I was a big fan of ENS. I think I got my first name, .eth, and then unfortunately I lost the wallet. And I, it's sad, but uh, so I had to scoop, scoop my name on other chains just to uh, make myself feel better. <laughs> That's a good one. Or you could do a last name, uh, last name, and also make a sub subdomain of your own name. Definitely. Um, in terms of kind of maybe just a little bit more like personal uh, on your career side of things, what advice would you give to women, to people, to college students that are interested in Web three and maybe? Um, are excited about the growth, want to get involved, but maybe don't know where to start? The first thing I'd say is like, there's a great filter of risk tolerance um, that people need to get past. So, you know, like leaving consulting, it was definitely a big decision if I wanted to leave this very cushy, exciting job. Um, I think there's a lot of fear around that concept of how am I going to get paid? What does the future look like? And there definitely are risks, you know, like a lot of people in crypto get paid buy a crypto and then they cash out to their banks when they're ready to pay their bills. Um, but I, I would encourage people to sort of surpass that because it's sort of like a trivial um, delay or challenge for all these benefits of being in this really exciting industry and working on new things. Um, I would also say, you know, being a non-technical person myself, there's a lot of stigma around how do business minded or product minded people get involved because they don't see the direct access point they see blockchain and they're like, oh, engineering, I have to be an engineer. And crypto is just like any industry, like in the oil and gas industry, you don't need to know everything about oil and gas, you need to also be a marketer and, you know, a BD person or whatever it might be. Um, So I would encourage people that, you know, if you're not seeing the job posting that you want, go contact that team and ask if they need your role. Because we're so early that people don't even realize their, their team structures, like, like everyone doesn't have crypto experience. A lot of people are Millennials are younger, meaning they don't even have necessarily proper leadership experience that having someone come up to them and say, hey, I'd love to do these things and maybe I'll work as a grantee um, or maybe I'll join your DAO, but this is where I want to go and these are the things I can provide um, is often the way that we've hired in the past is, you know, we see people just standing up in the community and we realize, huh, we need someone doing that full time, join us full time. Um, so like, I think there's a lot of this dog fooding, getting involved early in different places to figure out where you are. 
But I would say definitely do not be discouraged if you don't see your role because it might be that the teams don't even realize they need your role. Yeah, uh, that's great advice. I think, I mean, personally, it, it is very intimidating, even on the engineering side of things. There's so many debates, even on blockchain architecture, that uh, I, I think even the different communities would argue about what is correct and uh, what is kind of the path forward for the industry. So even if you're technical, there's lots of nuance and uh, always more to learn. In terms of your personal like journey and how you kind of overcame some of those hurdles on being a little bit more non-technical but wanting to get involved, what made you really want to personally make that jump yourself? Yeah, good question. So definitely my brother, you know, helping me helped a lot. Um, you know, having a mentor or somebody that can explain some of the concepts to you from the inside is definitely very beneficial. Um, but I would say the bigger thing I did was two things. I made a conscious decision to be on Twitter. Um, there was literally a day where I was like, I'm going to delete all of these crappy college tweets and I'm going to go full blown crypto, follow the right people, really, you know, embed myself in a way that I knew what was going on because I realized that the public square of crypto is on Twitter. And so you just want to know, like you, you, you want to have the information basically accessible. Um, so that's really big. You know, if you log into Twitter, even once a day, you'll get a dump of new info, whether it was like a new regulation or just a new project launching. And that's a great way to learn. The second thing I did, um, I was lucky that I, I was able to take a few weeks off work to properly embed myself. And I was watching YouTube videos every single day. Um, I was watching like Vlad talk about Casper, um, consensus mechanism, just like random videos from engineers, researchers, business people to fully grasp what all these concepts meant and where I thought was interesting. So to me, again, payments were very interesting, the concept of access to banking for people who don't have access. And so a lot of the content I was um, looking into was, was sort of these payment related um, components. And then I eventually worked at Omise Go. Um, but I think there's you know a, a world of content out there where you can do a lot of self-teaching. Um, it's really just taking the time to, to do it. And then not being afraid to ask questions. You know, like even early on, I would sometimes just tweet a stupid question. And then I get some people debating in my, my mentions. And I was like, oh, damn it. But the next day, I'm like, wow, I just like fundamentally understand this way better than I did yesterday. Um, and there's these kinds of moments that you're like, aha, I now understand a little bit more about what's happening. Um, and then you can keep going deeper in the technical side if you want to. Or that could be the moment you engage with another team and say, hey, I, I now understand enough to work for you. 100%. And it's kind of funny that the blockchain community has kind of coalesced on Twitter, but I love it. I appreciate that it's the town square. Uh, we often kind of do get in kind of knife fights just with like either architectures or different point of views, but it's fun. And for those people that are interested, it's almost mandatory that you be on Twitter, in my opinion. If someone says that they're in the blockchain industry, but not on Twitter, I'm like, ah, I don't know if you're really following along that closely. Yeah, I would say you don't necessarily have to participate. So like, you don't have to feel pressured to be the one commenting, but you definitely need to be on Twitter to know what's going on. Because I find, you know, major reporting institutions are actually reporting often on the news broken on Twitter. So, um, you know, for... For alpha reasons, for your own project reasons, it makes sense to just learn from Twitter. 100%. 100%. In terms of kind of maybe some of the headwinds that the industry is facing, uh, I think the U.S. particularly has kind of set a little bit of a bearish tone and not providing a lot of clarity to companies or protocols or teams building in the U.S. What is your personal opinion on 
maybe some of the headwinds that the U.S. is going to face uh, in terms of kind of getting mainstream adoption uh, approved by the regulators? My honest opinion is I feel it's a bit of a distraction. And, you know, maybe that's the intent is for regulators to distract us so much that we can't ship as fast. Um, But it is, you know, if you ask any protocol team, regulatory discussions make up quite a bit of time that could otherwise be spent on innovation or just like continuing to ship. Um, I think that there is a world where things get solved. You know, there, there are a lot of lobbyists, there's, you know, the Coinbase efforts, the Ripple efforts, um, and that would be a best case scenario. Um, but most teams like ours are really thinking globally um, and not only for their regulatory concerns today, but simply, you know, relying on one jurisdiction is just not scalable. It's not resilient. It's really not what we're doing here. Um, so even when you look at Ethereum, you know, yes, Ethereum might have a U.S. presence, but it has equally large presence globally, um, if not larger. Um, and that's really what we're all focusing on is how do we make sure that whatever attack vector exists, whether it's political, jurisdictional, um, you know, system uh, systemic, where maybe it's like a certain payment system excluding us, that we then have other ways to keep these um, platforms and protocols running and that we have the communities. Um, so, for example, the graph, we're focusing heavily on India and China and the rest of Asia this year. We did a lot of work um, in South America last year um, and really making sure that there is not only the education, but the empowerment on the ground for people to then start up their own meetup or educate other people and bring in more um, of their local um, community into crypto. Yeah, it's I think the globalization efforts are super important. And even if the U.S. kind of shoots itself in the foot, at least momentarily, uh, that those efforts do not stop and we continue to build kind of outside of the U.S. as unfortunate as it may be. Do you feel like you've seen teams on a large part, even when you're talking to them on the graph side of things, have kind of started to think more about building outside of the U.S.? I don't know if there's been a lot of like active assimilation, like let's leave, but there has been a lot more active planning of having non-US contributors, um, again, like really focusing on the development of, of ecosystems outside of the US. And I think actually the greater focus of teams like The Graph on non-US communities actually puts way more pressure on the US. So um, if if we maintain the status quo of trying to still kind of harbor everything in the U.S., that isn't a lot of competitive pressure for the U.S. Um, but once the U.S. sees other jurisdictions doing really interesting things, like I saw the U.K. came out with something recently, um, you know, Dubai is, is really, you know, at the forefront. Um, this really just doesn't leave the U.S. with many options. So I would say the more that we actually globalize, the stronger um, our case becomes in the U.S. and the more resilient our networks become. 100%. It's it's a tricky place to be at the moment uh, for builders and founders, even investors. Uh, not having the clarity is definitely frustrating. I, I hope we can, um, hopefully the U.S. kind of rights the, the wrongs and gives everybody a little bit better of a framework to uh, start evaluating these things. On the investor side, though, I think one of the other hardships in the investing world is as much as uh, we enjoy number go up, there's been a lot of blow ups and a lot of kind of pitfalls in the industry, especially in this last bull market that you just need to avoid. What have you kind of learned from like on the investing side and being a prominent investor in the space uh, about avoiding things as much as wanting into ape into things? Great question, because I definitely do some degen things on the side myself. Um, you know, I think that any, any investor and, and, and I'm not a full-time investor, so I, I really can't speak for the venture capital industry, but I would assume any investor is always looking at whether this thing will be around. 
Um, and a lot of the perspective I've now taken being on the builder side is um, not only is this thing going to be around, but is the team building it going to be sustained um, until the thing ships? Um, and I think that's actually really underestimated how much momentum is needed to ship something. And in crypto, because we're working on protocols, which are inherently more complex, um, have longer roadmaps, the certainty of the resourcing is actually um, much more needed. You know, you, you can kind of assume a Web2 team will be around maybe for a year to ship the MVP and then maybe wait for the next funding round. Whereas in crypto, things don't normally happen in one year. It might take, you know, three years, five years, as we've seen in Ethereum and other places. Um, and so how do you maintain that momentum? How do you ensure that people aren't burning out, um, that there's enough resourcing? Um, so like, like, I think that's the biggest challenge here is, is for us to figure out how, how do you scale beyond the original teams because networks themselves are so much more difficult to actually grow. Yeah. The, the original team is hard. And I guess that kind of goes back to the progressive, like decentralization of, or the ethos of the industry is kind of build it, get some amount of product market fit. And at some point down the line, uh, hopefully the community or the incentives of the network allows the operators uh, even outside of the direct uh, contributors to uh, add value to that network. Have you exactly. thought more so about like that progressive decentralization aspect? Yeah, so I, I completely agree. And from the graph side, we do a lot of things like launching our graph advocates program and our DAOs as means of scaling our efforts. Um, so like sharing culture and then scaling so other people who aren't that founding team can can contribute. Um, going Going off of sort of what you said, like coming from the, investor perspective again, I think that's such an important consideration that like you you might be investing in that team because often early stage you are, but what you should be investing is in that team and the future potential of another team to succeed that initial team and whether there is a path to get there. So like when you're assessing a protocol, you know, part of your assessment is, is there a community and momentum forming around this protocol that like, it's not just going to die tomorrow if the founders get tired or if there isn't adoption. Um, and so when, when you're thinking about like these DeFi projects, you know, especially at this sort of late stage of the DeFi cycle past DeFi summer, um, you know, the question is, is this going to be useful? Is there going to be a team that continues working on this by the next bull market cycle? And if the answer is no, then it's not really a good investment. Um, if the answer is, hey, maybe not this team, but there's a community that would then continue that progress, then maybe it's a good investment. And we've definitely seen that happen. You know, things like the nouns ecosystem, I think are really interesting to watch where they've really built in a um, a core group of contributors that continuously like feed in and their DAO is very strong values, um, even beyond just the first initial few members. Yeah, it's the nouns DAO in particular is a very interesting model where they auction off one every day and have a large treasury. I'm interested to see where that ultimately goes. I actually think this is maybe one of the more revolutionary unexplored models. Um, and it's very similar to Moloch DAO, where like you do have um, this like sponsorship of new members or rejection of members. But what they've done is they have this auction. So you're constantly adding in new members and all the funding is going to one treasury. And I don't think we've seen that behavior from many projects at all, re regardless of NFTs or not. Usually when, um, when, when, when they're like NFT sales, it's going maybe to the pocket of the team and then maybe there's some split. But they are really embodying this, this concept of like every decision has been made by the collective of the DAO. Um, which is really unique. It is super unique. I'm uh, definitely watching it with a keen eye. I think maybe going back to 2017, uh, at that point in time, the really 
I would say the exciting things before the ICO market was Bitcoin. And then Ethereum came along and kind of had smart contracts. Uh, a lot of tokens got launched, not very many products, but a lot of tokens. And then unfortunately in 2018, when that kind of token hype came down, uh, a lot of the Bitcoiners were kind of dancing on Ethereum's graves. Do you think, uh, and then I think Ethereum and the core community really that stuck around um, during that non-consensus time was the thing that really pushed the industry forward, got the applications built. What do you feel like today are like the more non-consensus bets uh, within crypto that are maybe unpopular, uh, but that you have like maybe higher conviction? It's interesting that you bring up Bitcoin um, because I personally have not been following the development space as much until recently with the ordinals excitement and just this, this whole new world, basically, of potential smart contracts and unique applications. And I think that's actually very controversial in Bitcoin. Um, I, I don't know you know, where that's going to go. Um, my, my sources tell me that there's been a lot of progress made on Lightning, um, that Lightning is actually now prime time ready, which is kind of like in Ethereum world, rollups are now prime time ready. So there could be this moment that all of these trends coalescing actually fundamentally change the Bitcoin community where there's still some sort of more Bitcoin asset maxis. And then there's another cohort that's more interested in, in evolving Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, as, as a general trend, I think we are going to see bifurcation of L1 ecosystems on what is the actual purpose of that L1. So, you know, up until now, Bitcoin has been sort of this asset space. Is there a world where there's applications? Um, I think we're going to start seeing similar conversations across other L1s like Solana, Near, um, Bin Binance Smart Chain, you know, figuring out what is the unique thing that they add value um, to crypto that maybe other chains don't. Um, and through that, I think we'll also see a lot of displacement of, you know, people leaving certain chains for other ecosystems once they realize where they align the most with the values. I fully agree. I think every chain kind of needs to, one, build a community, but also what is their unique value prop outside of uh, just being like an EVM clone? Yeah. Is, is there any, in your mind, is there any possibility that ETH in the future is not the dominant smart contract platform? Or do you feel like uh, Ethereum already has such network effects that there can't be surpassed? My personal perspective is ETH is dominant. Um, my my graph perspective is it, it doesn't matter, right? Like here, again, we're here to serve equally every chain, um, and so we do. Um, back to my personal perspective, I do think that in technology and in industries, there's this habit that um, not always the best technology wins because of other things, um, and those other things might be network effects, education, and I think that is at play with Ethereum. Um, that's not to say that Ethereum is not.